Hello and welcome to our FIS podcast, Castaway, keeping you in the know on the shipping and commodity worlds where we're all at home quarantined. We know that working and business has changed dramatically in the past couple of months, so developing a range of resources to help keep you up to date on everything happening. If you'd like to find out more, you can visit our website, www.freightinvestorservices.com, or follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Hello, welcome back to Castaway FIS's podcast on the 26th of August. We have uh, in the office with myself, Kerry uh, and Alex, who you are all well acquainted with. Good morning. Um, morning. From Singapore, we obviously have Tom, our Director of Asia. Hello, Tom. Morning, guys. Uh, and we have our special guest for this week, Richard Heath, the uh, Senior Manager of the of Group Strategy at EEX. Good morning. Cool. Well, let's move on to our first bit of uh, today, where we're going to be going across our usual market updates before going on to our special feature with our very special guests. So why don't we start... Uh, this week with our freight. Kerry, what have we seen this week? It's been a slightly volatile week, actually. The Cape market dipped a little bit last week uh, after hitting a low on Friday uh, of just under 18,000 on the spot 5TC average. Uh, We've seen it bounce back a bit uh, with that number now climbing just above 19,000 as of yesterday. Uh, The Cape paper, meanwhile, has been even more volatile. The front month September traded down to a low of 19,000. It's consistently been maintaining a premium to the index before jumping quite quite a bit back up to uh, a little over 22,000 yesterday, while the October has actually been trading at a premium to the September now, uh, trading just above 23,000 yesterday, seeing a drop back just a touch this morning to 22.6 or so. The Panamax spot has been sliding for most of the week. Uh, we saw that 4TC index slide about $1,500 uh, down to uh, 13.322 as of yesterday, although the paper followed the lead of the Cape. So it slid a bit and has bounced back up over the past couple of days, pushing about 800 bucks up on the front months. Uh, we're seeing the September and the October both trading in region 14.250. Cool. Tom, what about market movements in the iron ore market? Um, so yeah, speaking to my team today, one of them suggested I might be better doing a mean. Uh, a mime or a dance uh, than trying to explain the intraday movement of the iron ore market this week. Um, I think this is the first time in about seven or eight weeks on the podcast that I'll be reporting a price movement to the downside on the iron ore contract. So in terms of the the two contracts we've been looking at as price references for the last few weeks, uh, the September contract last week when we were talking was around 125 uh, US dollars a ton um, and the Q1 contract around 107.50. As at now, uh, the September contract uh, just shy of $120 and the Q1 uh, 105.50. So we've seen a significant move down. Um, if we'd asked me earlier today, there'd have been an extra $2 further down uh, on that as well. So we had a bit of a rebound this afternoon that most people have really struggled to explain from a fundamental or a technical perspective. So continuation of a lot of themes we've been talking about um, in terms of how tight the market is at the moment um, from a supply and demand perspective. Um, but yeah, more and more Crazy, crazy, unexplainable action on the on the iron ore. Mm-hmm. We kind of had a, a reversal this week where oil was probably outperforming iron ore for one. Didn't we? 
Haven't heard that in a while. Exactly. Good to, to point <laughs> out that we, we did touch just above $46 on the brain uh, yesterday. We, we were there very early this morning, but that's come off as well this morning. Everything has been in the news about the, the storm hitting the US, which is obviously disrupting a lot of the industry there. Uh, a lot of people pushing up on price and anticipating a lot of disruption. I'm sure we'll see that with the, the EIA data next week, because it will be this week's data will be reported next week. Um, but also another bullish factor which has pushed up those prices is China's continued commitment to uh, phase one of the US deal. So disruption of the industry and they're going to be buying a lot of it could have quite a shortfall on all of the oil products, a short squeeze at least. Excellent. But let's move on to some of the reasons, supply and demand quickly. Kerry, why, yeah, um, why do we have our market movement? <clears throat> In short, the ton of supply in Capes has gotten a little more balanced. Um, some weather-related disruptions actually helping us out here, um, causing increasing congestion off Australia. Uh, in terms of the C3 Brazil-China route, we're looking at a kind of a two-tier market, I suspect, uh, depending on the dates. The balusters are very plentiful in the prompt loading dates. That has been keeping the index down on that C3. That is for early September loading in Brazil. But uh, they start to look a little bit thinner in terms of tonnage supply uh, on those later September dates. The Panamax tonnage has been tightening a bit for the Black Sea and the East Med region, which is pushing the rates up there. Uh, it remains fairly plentiful, plentiful off the North Continent and fairly steady in the Pacific. In terms of demand, I mean, this has really been the driver this week. Uh, we've seen the major miners in the East helping the Capes a lot uh, with a good deal more inquiry. They have pushed those C5 rates up and up this week with uh, eight and a quarter and 840 being traded yesterday uh, in the physical market. There has been chatter for weeks now that we've been discussing on this podcast about Brazil becoming more active. Uh, we've sort of been waiting and waiting to see that actually happen. Um, we are starting to see that. Uh, we haven't seen vast numbers of fixtures, but the rates on the C3 in the physical market are being done uh, for those late September dates now. Uh, certainly with the bids hovering above $18 and a rumor of $18.40 being done yesterday on that C3 route for, uh, for an end of September loading date. So the market continues to expect a push here. That explains the push up on the October in particular. Um, everyone's shifting their expectations basically back a month, pushing that paper up, looking for that real surge from Brazil, which, uh, which should in theory drive the iron ore prices down. But I'll let Tom yeah. speak to that. Exactly. No, we should be having yeah. a, a very interesting Q4 that is. Yeah. Definitely sure. Tom, why don't you tell us about iron ore, the movers in terms of supply and demand? Yeah, so I mean the the big theme, I guess, um, the last last couple of weeks um, has been the congestion at the, the, the ports in in China. So uh, at Friday last week, I'm sorry, I don't have uh, figures up to date to today, but on Friday last week there were 185 ships at port waiting to uh, discharge iron ore cargoes into Ch into China. Uh, across various ports. So if you assume an average Cape size of about 170,000 KT, uh, that, that, that assumes about 31.5 million tonnes waiting to discharge at port that can't at the moment due to scares around, you know, crew, coronavirus issues, et cetera, et cetera. So there's that is, it's still, uh, you know, a big driver of price at the moment. Um, <clears throat> I think the market may well be starting to position for a correction when that does start to discharge. But some of the tightness that we've been seeing and some of the which has been driving that price north has been um, 
some real congestion in the sort of mid-grade uh, iron ore fines, um, which has sort of been the most in-demand product this year. What we've seen in the last few weeks, and certainly in the last week, has been a real transition um, towards blending. So blending um, high-quality high concentrates and low-quality concentrates and starting to use a bit more scrap as well to replace those middle-grade ores. Um, so that the congestion on those middle-grade ores that has been pushing this price up and up and up has been uh, knocked on the head a little bit uh, due to people moving into these high grade products. Um, that's been driven by the, you know, these, these negative mill margins that we've been talking about for the last couple of weeks. Um, in terms of other bits and bobs as well, the Tangshan region uh, is starting to overhaul some of its mills. Um, so um, some of the, some of the machines are being uh, sort of, stopped for, for service at the moment. Uh, so that, that will obviously put a bit of a, a squeeze um, on demand as well. Um, but no real big news this week. It's a sort of continuation of everything we've been talking about. In terms of Vale, uh, which has obviously been that sort of main story in iron ore, or, or not the main story, but one of the, the main drivers of the last few weeks. Their, their weekly shipments uh, last week were down 7.5% on the week. Uh, they delivered 5.8 million tonnes, um, or 5.8 million tonnes, sorry, left, left Brazilian ports. Um, but the weekly average shipment uh, for the last four weeks is, is at 6.1. So they are starting to ramp it up. They've again said that they will be the number one exporter into into China this year, which means more than 300 million tons. But if if people remember, forecast is 310 to 330. So I don't know if that signals a slight reduction in their in their uh, in their forecasting uh, without admitting to it tacitly. Um, so we'll see what happens with that. But continuation of, of various themes. But um, I think that congestion uh, is really the main driving factor at the moment. But from the demand side. China is still lapping up every ton. Uh, and I think that tightness being driven by Chinese demand will, will be with us for a while. Uh, and then if Japan and Korea and, and other industrial nations can start to pick up some of that demand as they as they come back online, I think that, that tightness will continue. So we'll see what happens, but um, that, that's the story of the week. Cool, thank you, Tom. Uh, in terms of the oil side, we, of course, I outlined what's happening in the, in the US Gulf and estimated about 82% of the Gulf of Mexico production is going to be shut down because of, of a storm, which is around about 1 million barrels a day, been estimated for that. Um, obviously, one of the, the hurricanes has been downgraded, the other one has been upgraded, so, so a lot yeah. of disruption could be coming uh, this week. Um, crude stocks in the US have fallen 23 million barrels, the fall of 5 million in the previous week, a record for of 2.11 billion. So. Lots of changes after all the disruption that the virus has caused, and now even more. So, yeah. really interesting to see what happens later today with the EIA figures, and then next week once we get this week's impact uh, reflected in those numbers. On the supply side, it's interesting to note that the Saudis have now fallen to being number three in terms of China's crude supply, uh, behind Russia and Iraq. And the U.S. have exported a record now uh, to the country. Uh, January previous high was January 2018, and we've now got to those levels again. Um, obviously, part of that is the, the big deal between the US and China to increase a lot of those energy yeah. products, as well as as well as other manufactured and other goods. But in terms of the supply side, US is where everything's really happening at the moment. Uh, not too much happening elsewhere. <clears throat> in terms of demand, 
China, as we mentioned, in terms of the deal, we could see that ramping up, especially as we get closer to the US election. South Korean imports are down. Uh, we also expect to see a cut in a lot of the US production. We've noted previously the problems that the US oil industry has had in terms of, of credit. It's the price collapse. Uh, you know, getting echoes of 2014-15 when we had a, the attempt of OPEC to crush the US oil industry. But um, no, some serious problems there. And also the switch of hedge funds, money managers' interests. So we usually have a lot of interest in crude, but it seems that they are now turning their attention towards products. Um, petroleum products were the most favorable product to be taken out uh, on over 20 million barrels of net sales of crude in the same period. We're actually down 8 million over the last two months. So you can really see that switch from crude to products in terms of what money managers are putting their money into. Last point of note in terms of, of things is high sulfur fuel oil prices are now mm. back at levels pre-oil crash. So all those people who didn't hedge in the middle of, <laughs> of the coronavirus, you, too late. Too late is the, is the answer. But uh, yeah, not, we've, we've noted for the previous couple of weeks that not too much has been moving, but the storm uh, and other kind of movements of crude, and uh, we're definitely yeah. setting ourselves up some, some increased movements, but uh, at least a little bit of, of crude up. 46 yeah. back again, but yeah, not too much else to, to note really. But some, some other facts before we move on to our main feature. Kerry, you've got some couple Yeah, of I mean, <clears throat> I guess what I'd say is keep an eye on the Panamaxes uh, right now because they're already starting to push up. We are just coming in, keep in mind, to the, the U.S. golf green season uh, hitting its peak, and we are seeing a lot of increasing demand out of the U.S. golf uh, for those green shipments. In fact, rates on modern ships, I believe, delivery North China now, are pushing 15,000 um, for that round voyage uh, to the Gulf and back. So, you know, given that China does seem to be upping its purchases as well, that's probably the market to keep an eye on right now. So some other markets before we move on. Uh, Alex, do you want to give us a little brief overview of what's happening in terms of tankers? Yeah, and I'll lift a summer report from Brandon, who's a youngster on the tankers desk. And this is also available on the app, uh, FIS Live. And he's titled it, Houston, We Have a Problem. Very amusing. And uh, with the hurricane season well underway, the Gulf of Mexico is under threat from a double hit with both Marco and Laura over the weekend, having the potential to turn into a fully-fledged hurricane. This is pretty worrying news for the oil industry, um, especially with the onshore industry there accommodating the Gulf, with offshore production accounting for around one-fifth of U.S. production and onshore 45% of U.S. refining. So along with the Texas and Louisiana coast, uh, sorry, along the Texas and Louisiana coast, many oil refineries and ports with a plethora of pipelines that accept oil from all over the world and distribute, distribute it throughout North America. Multiple tanker freight routes, both clean and dirty, have their main ports for loading and discharging in the Gulf. So WTI prices have seen a slight climb amid hurricane worries. However, U.S. onshore production is responding quickly and inventory levels are high enough that no thrill, real threat is perceived. Historically, at times of hurricanes, freight rates see an increase. This increase is usually driven by a lack of available tonnage as owners fix vessels to new destinations to avoid harm. Ports close, increasing delays, racking up demurrage fees, and refiners shut down and reduce their runs. However, the tanker market is not in normal conditions, with demand still relatively low for CPP and crude and oversupplying vessels, with many more gradually discharging from floating storage. Rates may not follow the usual hurricane evacuation plan. So moving forward, we may see a further spike in rates in a few routes responding to Laura and the suspected tight tonnage list resulting from her, her activities. 
This could bring a short-term boost to the curves, but equally could have little effect on certain routes being suppressed by the mass oversupply of current vessels. Only time will tell, and hopefully Laura does not provoke too much damage and all US residents stay safe. <laughs> Thank you very Thank much. You for that yeah. Yeah. Uh, just one last bit in terms of the FERTS markets. So we have seen a weakening of prices due to low expectations of new tenders uh, and an increase in the Chinese export appetite. Uh, Brazil paper also took a tumble off the back of lower physical, which was um, sub 270. Tuesday, however, we did see buyers re-enter the market uh, with news of what we've already talked about, the problems in terms of yeah. port congestion in China, uh, potentially restricting the availability for uh, tenders for, for India, a lot of India business. So that did push up the October up to 267. Uh, of course, US storm is impacting the, the American markets with domestic barge prices in Nola Ferts all becoming well supported now. And we should see a short squeeze as per the same we talked about with, with tankers and also with the oil industry there. Nola DAP futures remains liquid and volatile and physical is continuing to trade at $360, so somewhat similar to last week. Oh, well, I'll hand over to Kerry for our main feature of this week. Over to you. Excellent. Yes, uh, today we're lucky enough to have with us Richard Heath, the Senior Manager of Group Strategy at EEX. And as I introduce Richard, I can't imagine that many people who listen to this podcast are not familiar with EEX, the European Energy Exchange, but I will give just a few of their impressive stats in terms of growth in the freight market. Uh, they only entered the market in 2017, uh, as they entered in with LCH, uh, with something less than a 5% market share, as I recall. Uh, having acquired NASDAQ freight operations in 2019, they took their market share up to 35%. And just in the past year, they have actually moved up to, uh, to take around 56% of the open interest currently with, uh, with around a 50% share of traded volumes. So very, very impressive growth in that space from EEX. Um, and Richard, thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you uh, very much for the introduction, Kerry, and uh, thanks, uh, thanks for the invite. Good to be here. Um, one of the things that I think we've all been talking about is that, look, putting aside competition between yourselves and the other major exchange in this, uh, in this space, where do we see future growth emerging from the space? Uh, and in terms of the fact of are we looking at a situation where traditional physical players are already saturated in this space or do we still see growth coming from them? Are we looking for other spaces in which uh, dry freight can grow as well? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question and it's um, you know the, the topical question for the industry. Um, I mean, at the moment, we're in a, a general period of growth for dry freight FFAs overall. I think the, the sort of average growth over the last three years has been know 10 percent year on year in terms of volumes and with you know really really strong volume in the first half of this year you know we probably expect that to continue so there there is growth in the market i think the question is as you rightly put it is you know where is it coming from what segments are there still to develop um and certainly you know on the physical side we see maybe some segments are a little bit saturated but still there's always opportunity for growth so yeah, so from, from our point of view as an exchange, what we're looking at is, you know, how can we continue that growth or even accelerate it? And we look at breaking the market down into different sectors to see where are there opportunities for growth, which types of players can we attract in and what are the focuses of those different areas? So 
when we look at the the physical market, I think there's still you know a lot of opportunity to bring new physical counterparties in into the market, um, and certainly we have you know a number of tools and services to do that. And the challenge on that side, and this may sound really obvious, is you know how do we make trading easy? You know when we talk about bringing a new physical participant into the market to hedge for the first time what can we do to make the barriers to entry as low as possible? So on our side as an exchange, yeah. this is you know, providing transparency around things like margin estimates, position management. Um, you know, how do we make it easy to integrate back office functions and recon- recon- how do we make reconciliation efficient? So certainly we can, we can have a focus on that part of the market. And I think there's still a big opportunity in the smaller smaller vessel sizes. You know, there's a challenge here. Yeah. The nature of the market here is that it's less homogenous. You know, it does present a bit of a challenge to effective hedging, but certainly it's an area of the market which is, you know, not fully um, exploited at the moment and somewhere where we could look to bring in new players. So the questions are, you know, how we do that. Okay. Okay. I mean, you actually touched on on one area that I find quite salient here, which is market transparency. Um, I know that you guys have been touting this as 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 as, as an important development uh, for the future of the market. Um, obviously, on our end, we are developing some new products to increase accessibility and transparency as well. We've introduced our FIS Live app, for example, which gives real time pricing on the markets. Um, uh, from your mobile or, or from a desktop system. And uh, we'll soon be rolling out live pricing, in fact, on the Bloomberg as well by our mm-hmm. Bloomberg page uh, and even available to stream directly into uh, into computer systems through an API or through uh, that Bloomberg B-Pipe system. So, you know, I think, I think we're probably not the only ones that work on such products, but uh, I think the market in general is, is certainly moving towards a great deal more transparency. Um, do you see that as attracting a new sector of players or simply lowering the bar for those existing players in the market to uh, to increase participation? Yeah, I, I certainly think it, it benefits all segments of the market. Um, you know, when we think about transparency and we think about what can we do as an industry around transparency, we tend to think a lot about the, the financial players in the market or attracting new financial players into the market. Um, you know, we see in a lot of our other cool markets a growing financialization of commodities. And so we talk to these organizations and, you know, ask them what's important. And, you know, again, not rocket science, but the same two points come up, liquidity and transparency. Now, liquidity we yeah. have in dry freight FFAs. Transparency is something I think as an industry, we need to collaborate and work together on to, you know, bring as much of that through as possible. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And uh, in in terms of that particular sector, it's interesting to note. I mean, for for the markets we look at, for example, in iron ore, uh, fund participation makes up around one third of market liquidity, whereas on the freight, I would say it's just under twenty percent from our perspective. Uh, so I, you could say that the dry freight, in terms of fund involvement, uh, has been lagging. Having said that. I would say that our experience is that we're seeing a lot more inquiry from funds in this market. And in fact, our decision to, to do things like bring on live streaming pricing over the Bloomberg B-Pipe system has actually resulted in 
a number of systematics, for example, looking at the market that I don't think previously would have looked at this space. So we certainly see the growth there. At the same time, obviously, um, the core of the market will continue to be uh, the physical participants, uh, the, uh, the ship operators, the ship owners, and, uh, and the shippers themselves. I think that's how we see it moving forward. Um, I would like to move into container. That's all right, Richard. So just yeah, ask I mean, you a couple of things on container freight. One, one area I'd like to touch on on the dry, just, just before we move on, also when we're talking about growth and you know how we segregate the market and look for, yeah. look for opportunities to grow, is the options market. So, you know, we see uh, yeah, we see the overall market growing year on year, but this year, um, certainly at EEX, we see uh, growth in options volumes actually outpacing futures. So we think probably 15% year on year growth this year for options volumes, whereas, you know, eight to 10% growth in, in, in futures. And we certainly see a number of new uh, counterparties putting on their first options trade. So I think that's really encouraging. And it just shows that, you know, the the opportunity in the market to grow is, you know, not tapped out by any by any means, you know, there's many, many more things we can do. And again, when we look at options, we have to go back to that mantra, you know, make it easy to trade when you come to put your first options trade on, um, you know, you need to be very sure of the impact that could have on your margin and your overall position. Um, and so these are areas. These are areas where you know we're actively working with new counterparties to try and bring them into the market, give them as much transparency as we possibly can from our side. Um, you know, so that when they come to put their first options trades and option strategies on, uh, they have a really good idea of how this is going to affect their overall portfolio, and that gives them the confidence to come into the market. And that's an area where you know we certainly see some results, and you know we see a lot of growth potential for the future as well. Do you think that growth this year, Richard, has been driven just by natural development of the market? Or do you think the increased volatility that, that this year's sort of uh, dynamics have borne out have, have increased that interest in options due to that volatility increase that we've seen this year? Yeah, so I certainly think the volatility increase, you know, is a good sort of starter for this. But I mean volatility this year has been big but let's be honest volatility in dry freight is not a new phenomenon phenomenon right it's uh you know it's a very very normal part sure. of of the market so it certainly you know it certainly kicks off the interest but you still need to have a way to take you know clients from that first interest through to actually executing their trade and being secure that it's going to give them the you know the position and the cash flow that they're expecting um and the margin requirements so I think it's, you know, one sort of instigates the other. Absolutely. I mean, I think one other area for the dry freight that I would be remiss if I didn't mention is uh, is the strong growth we're seeing on the individual routes as well. You know, that Cape C5 growth has continued. Um, we've seen about uh, 30,000 days, I believe, trade this year, year to date so far overall. Um, and the C3 routes traded uh, nearly 3,000 days, which doesn't sound like very much, but there's actually about a tenfold increase on that. Uh, on last year's uh, year-to-date figure, so uh, so so that's another area where I think the market has definite potential to uh, to, to see a little bit more growth. Yeah, I would agree, and I think you know on the on the Cape routes, I mean, some of this came around with um, IMO twenty twenty, right, and being able to take out some of the uh, you know speculation on fuel from uh, 
uh, from the activity. Yeah. But it, it seems to have continued since then. And, you know, certainly when we talk to our members in the market, they say, well, you know, these are good things. They allow us to reduce the basis risk a little bit, give us more tools. Um, so anything we can we can do to grow those segments, you know, bearing in mind thinking of the overall liquidity balance, um, I think is positive as well. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I mean, moving on to a, to a slightly different area, um, we've heard a lot of chatter in the market recently about uh, container FFAs and the development of that product. Again, I should say, um, you know, the, the market possibilities for it, <clears throat> the idea that it could work this time around, um, the scale of interest being a little bit more this time around, for those listeners that may not be aware, uh, there was an effort to create about a decade ago container FFA market uh, uh, that did not ultimately go very far, but it does seem that we're getting a lot more inquiry on that at this time. We're certainly seeing a lot of the bigger lines asking questions about it this time and showing a willingness to engage. Um, is that something you guys are looking at at EEX right now? Yeah, certainly. So at EEX, we're committed to developing our shipping portfolio we're looking at all the markets and we're committed to continue to invest in this space um containers is a, a bit of a personal favorite of mine having worked in the container industry myself uh you know a long time ago now but you know certainly it's uh somewhere that has a special place in my heart so i mean what we're looking for as eex is um a role that we could play in any market that adds value to the industry and adds value to our members and so if that's something that we can find in the container space, I certainly wouldn't rule it out. Absolutely, and it's, and it's probably a market that's right for that right now. Spot pricing is certainly on the increase. Uh, we've seen that a lot of carriers are showing an interest to hedge from Q1 2021 and onwards on the basis of a high freight rate that could easily start to deflate as new capacity comes back into the market and demand levels potentially drop. Um, We've seen profit forecasts for the liner industry flip-flopping uh, intra-year from losses uh, ranging from $800 million to $23 billion to a projected profit of $9 billion now. So quite a clear impact of the, uh, of the volatility in terms of cash flow for the carriers. Um, and, uh, and I should think uh, a motivation to engage a little bit more in, uh, in the development of a viable and liquid market uh, with which to hedge yeah i mean it's, a, it's an interesting time in the in the industry right i think um everything you've said there is is very accurate and it's um it's really interesting to see a different reaction from the carriers to the current demand crisis as opposed to that which happened in the financial crash of, of 2008 and i think you know we've seen it in the press conferences from Maersk and others um, and certainly in the consolidation that's been in the market over the last five years or so, um, that, you know, this old battle for, for scale and just, you know, who can have the most TU slots on the water um, is something which is now far less important. And smart capacity management um, is, is the new sort of name of the game. And of course, this has the effect of maybe increasing some of the pain points that we have in the industry, right, with, you know, overbooking of vessels, cargo rolling or cargo no-shows. Um, and so, you know, there's definitely a problem there in the industry that, that the industry is looking to solve. And, you know, the question is, um, you know, especially with a spot booking increase, is this a point in the industry where the dynamic is changing a little bit and we could see those new alternative pricing mechanisms start to take hold? So, 
yeah, interesting, interesting time in that market as well. Exactly, exactly. It's it's certainly a time that's right for it, and uh, we look forward to working with the EX moving forward on it, without a doubt. Brilliant. Well, on that note, uh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time, Richard. It's always a pleasure to talk, and always a pleasure to learn what EX's perspective on these markets are. Oh yes, thank you very much, Richard. Thank you to everyone who's joined again for this week, and to everyone listening. Do join us again next week. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks. very much.